This time it will be different, quips the mad scientist. I'm not one of those idiots who don't know what they're messing with. I'm an enlightened individual who's going to accomplish what's never been done before. Or so the thinking goes. We see these characters all the time in stories. But increasingly, we're seeing this mad scientist attitude in the real world. Why is life imitating the very art that tried to warn us? Welcome into the Secret Lab of Fantastical Truth, the podcast from Lorehaven in which we find the truths and beauties, goodness, wonders, any good thing about fantastical fiction, especially stories created by Christian writers. And we apply all of these things to the real world that our Savior, our author, Jesus Christ, calls us to serve. I'm E. Stephen Burnett, your co-host and also the publisher of lorehaven.com and author of the book called The Pop Culture Parent, along with two co-authors. And I'm Zachary Russell. And as I like to often joke, I've seen this movie before. And that's because this is episode 60. Why don't real researchers heed sci-fi warnings against mad science? And if you follow this podcast for a while, you know that occasionally we do a segment called Stranger Than Fantastical Fiction, featuring a crazy but true story in the news. Well, this entire episode is going to be about these kinds of headlines, and it's going to make you wonder, do these people even watch movies? Or read the books, all the classic science fiction novels that warned about uh, the man was not meant to meddle medley, as Tony Stark so famously captured it in uh, Avengers Age of Ultron. Another somewhat warning against uh, man meddling with nature and then uh, getting his comeuppance for his hubris. Uh, This is a trope in many works of science fiction, even going back to uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and other works that show the limits of science and the arrogance of scientists. And yet, and yet, even with all of those stories, it behooves us to ask, why do we share the memes of the stories? Why do we love the gif or the idea of uh, of, uh, Jeff Goldblum's character from Jurassic Park saying, your your scientists were so concerned about whether or not they could, they didn't stop to ask about whether or not they should. Uh, That's a (laughs) terrible impression. It uh, is a little bit too close to my Nicolas Cage impression, which is a little too close to my Jay Baruchel (laughs) as Hiccup from How to Train Your Dragon impression. Silly voices, fortunately, are are not our forte here. But asking the why questions about the the mad science overlook of warnings against mad science, uh, hopefully we'll do a bit of a better job at that. Well, there's that classic Ray Bradbury quote, I don't write science fiction to predict the future, but to prevent it. So this has often been a function of science fiction about the limits or the, the hard edges of where science and progress can take us. And sometimes it can be a little pessimistic. Sometimes it can be hopeful. But, you know, this has been a function of science fiction for the last 100 years to say, whoa, 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 we might be going a little bit too close to the edge of that cliff. So let's watch out. And this has even shown up in Christian stories. So I I think a great example we have for today is from The Magician's Nephew. Yeah, this is not a science fiction, although C.S. Lewis was uh, rather uh, underrated for his interest in science fiction as well as fantasy and nonfiction apologetics. Uh, especially in The Magician's Nephew, which uh, is one of my favorite of the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, there's a bit of a sci-fi edge there. There's a mad scientist-type character who's meddling with magic, actually, so it's kind of magic science. You know, Another trope there is that any, uh, any sufficiently advanced science is indistinguishable from magic. So what Uncle Andrew thinks he is playing with is just magic, uh, but he fancies himself a great scientist. And there's a famous quote, in which uh, his uh, nephew Diggory confronts Uncle Andrew for pulling a fast one on Diggory's friend Polly and co-opting her as the victim of his experiment. Diggory fancies this absolutely egregious behavior, and Uncle Andrew uh, replies to his nephew's uh, accusation, Rotten? said Uncle Andrew with a puzzled look. Oh, I see. You mean that little boys ought to keep their promises? Very true, most right and proper, I'm sure, and I'm very glad you have been taught to do it. But of course you must understand that rules of that sort, however excellent they may be for little boys and servants and women, and even people in general, can't possibly be expected to apply to profound students and great thinkers and sages. (laughs) No, Diggory, men like me who possess hidden wisdom are freed from common rules just as we are cut off from common pleasures. Ours, my boy, 
is a high and lonely destiny. As he said this, he sighed and looked so grave and noble and mysterious that for a second Diggory really thought he was saying something rather fine. But then he remembered the ugly look he had seen on his uncle's face the moment before Polly had vanished, and all at once he saw through Uncle Andrew's grand words. All it means, he said to himself, is that he thinks he can do anything he likes to get anything he wants. That's from C.S. Lewis's The Magician's Nephew, end quote, I suppose I should say. And uh, interestingly, later on, uh, the uh, the other villain of the piece, like Uncle Andrew's really presented as more of, of a foolish meddling magician. Uh, once the real heavy arrives as Jodis uh, from the uh, lost realm of Charn, uh, she later becomes the White Witch in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. The children meet her in this land, and she explains to them, quote, I was the queen. They were all my people. What else were they there for but to do my will? You must learn, child, that what would be wrong for you or for any of the common people is not wrong in a great queen such as I. The weight of the world is on our shoulders. We must be freed from all rules. Ours is a high and lonely destiny. End quote. There it is again, the same words, and the author, obviously, and the characters draw attention to that. The high and lonely destiny. We're freed from common pleasures. We're freed from common rules. Uh, we have this grand story we've been called to fulfill. We're the smart ones. We're the royal ones. Uh, we're the uncommon ones, the specials. And I think that even as we nod along with stories like that and realize, oh, yes, this is a very sober warning, our real-life mad scientists and journalists and uh, lots of leaderly types, kind of the technocracy that we're all subjected to, seem to think that these stories are for the common people and certainly don't apply to the high and lonely destiny of the technocrats and the autocrats and the aspiring tyrants or just the foolish meddling mad scientists who are building things like robots and microchips. And what was the other one? Combining monkey and human DNA because we totally ignore even that first Planet of the Apes movie from the 60s with Charlton Heston pounding sand and saying words we can't repeat on a Christian podcast. Yeah, so we'll, we'll look at kind of three main areas of mad science that are happening in real life that we have headlines for all that are happening now. And so that would be gene editing, uh, sentient robots or artificial intelligence, and transhumanism, which sort of puts all that together to improve the human condition. And a quick concession stand, Steve and I are not anti-technology or anti-science. We're just pro-ethics uh, because this isn't really a debate between Christians and scientists, but it's often science versus science, like scientists versus scientists. Steve and I, I thought those, uh, those quotes from Magician's Nephew were so perfect that really there's a fundamental error of elitism happening. You know, like you said, they think they're the specials, that the rules don't apply to them. Uh, and that the rules are for the, you know, the lowly and stupid people. And so that's really the attitude. It, it's a heart attitude. It has nothing to do with science itself, but it has to do with man's view of himself. And, uh, you know, the objections to the stories we'll talk about most often are, are coming from the broader culture. Like th this is a very big debate uh, that never ends. And it's, it's always funny to me, Stephen, when I read these articles are like, well, these brought up some ethical concerns and it's as though there's just like some pearl clutching people out there i'm like don't a lot of people have these concerns like we have so many stories that warn about these concerns it's it's a pretty broad concern but i think these stories are meant of course you know th these stories if we think about them at all uh th they're meant for people who don't have democracy and education and specialization in their fields uh like the scientists of today I mean, those previous scientists, you know, they hardly even accepted the existence of germs and they don't know what we can possibly do with the Internet and wireless communication. Clearly, they're from a, a less civilized age, because, of course, <laughs> the only safe prejudice right now is a prejudice against history. We are the enlightened ones. We are the United States by gum. Uh, we are Western society. We know that there are bad things like racism and bigotry. And so we've just got it all fixed. The way that it's described, even in this objective language, uh, it sounds like some kind of a movie, or at least the early stages of the movie. You know, the, the setup for the secret lab on the island base uh, that happened in the flashback or before the opening credits, uh, rather than in the movie itself, which tends to skip ahead to uh, the reductio ad absurdum, uh, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, of the mad scientist's work. Uh, you skip to the end and suddenly the creatures are running amok and all of the uh, ethical problems have come together into this terrible uh, disaster. 
Yeah. So that's the first category there, gene editing, you know, which uh, in a sense, we are always editing genes by selective breeding of animals and, and even, you know, the, the people that you marry and, and have children with uh, that determines the genes of your children. And so we, we've always done this in a sort of low tech way, but now it's being done in a very high tech and very sophisticated and, and targeted way. And there are some promises to this. There are some interesting applications of it, but then there are some, like you said, there's some absurd ends of it. So the, this article from Forbes, scientists have created embryos that are part human and part monkey. And the quote there is chimeric embryos were created by injecting human stem cells into monkey embryos, which were then grown under laboratory conditions in quote, and then basically used for uh, the, the idea is to use them for organ transplants. And the quote there is a controversial practice that scientists say could help develop treatments for diseases and pave the way to growing much needed organs for human transplantation. The moral status of these part human animals is a particularly thorny issue as they must have enough humanity to be useful for experiments or one day to grow human organs, but not enough humanity so as to warrant protection from experimentation, end quote. So the, the story that warned us all about this was the island. And you mentioned, you mentioned that, that before. That before yes. the, oh, yeah. So it's Scarlett Johansson and, uh, is it Ewan McGregor? Th- that was a fantastic movie. It's so underrated. And it's about basically these clones of celebrities and politicians and other important people. And they're fully human clones, but they are, uh, the, the wider world thinks they are non-human or not fully human or something. And they're just kept around as spare parts for these, uh, these rich and important people. And then they come to a realization of who they are and they try to escape it. Man, it is a fantastic pro-life movie that it surprises you. And it's, it's like, how did this get made? And, and but yeah, it was made in about 15 years ago. You know, just this whole idea of experimenting on humans and trying to grow a human, but not make it human enough. It's like, yeah, th- calling that th- a thorny issue is sort of a understatement there. Just a bit. Uh, I'm also reminded of the, there was a, I believe it was, was it series one or series, uh, no, no, series five or series six of Doctor Who pounding up the series is from the 2005 uh, show revival. Obviously I forget exactly what the episode titles were called, uh, but uh, it, it concerns uh, the subplot where uh, the doctor and uh, his companions, uh, Rory and Amy uh, land on this planet, which is one of those uh, space mine work sites that they're often finding in the new series of doctor who. And in this case you actually see, I think even before uh, the doctor arrives in his TARDIS, uh, you see these people doing this dangerous experiment in a corridor. Doctor Who has a lot of corridors. They're, they're plentiful to run down and experience disaster in. These people are doing this ex- experiment or they're doing some kind of dangerous work. And then suddenly you just see someone suffer a lethal accident. And then instead of getting crushed or boiled alive or whatever it is, you just see them start to dissolve. And it's oh. gradually revealed that this actually is a substance that has been developed by science registered, you know, capital S science, Trademark. which is, yeah, which is uh, a little bit different from, you know, science lowercase, you'll put it in its proper, proper place. Anyway, uh, these futuristic scientists have uh, developed this substance they called the flesh that they use to make these human doppelgangers who, of course, you know, resemble the main characters in this mine who are directing the whole affair from a safe position. Uh, these doppelgangers are, in effect, their avatars, you know, hired uh, to be their surrogates. Uh, to do the dangerous work and then if they die there's no issue they weren't really mm. human or were they uh, the story itself isn't all that famous among doctor who enthusiasts because it was just another variation on the same theme man was not meant to meddle if you make something human-like be it android or some kind of you know surrogate organism how human is that creature does that human have rights and the best stories will of course raise the challenge to presume that, yes, that entity, that creature should have rights. You should at least be open to that possibility rather than just sending them in to do the dangerous work or taking them apart like the uh, scientists wanted to do in the Star Trek episode uh, to uh, Lieutenant Commander Data. 
oh, well, he's not a human. You know, he's Starfleet property. Just just take him apart. He doesn't have rights. You know, nothing personal. Just that's not a human being. It doesn't have a soul. Well, in these stories, the best ones, you will presume that that creature at least has some measure of autonomy and that you can't just run roughshod over that presumed right. Now, this uh, whole human-monkey hybrid is a full-grown being shows up in The Lamb Among the Stars. Uh, this is a Christian sci-fi I'd forgotten uh, about trilogy. that. That's right. Tyndale Hill's yeah. uh, hardcover, really nice hardcovers uh, several years ago. Yeah, so that they are basically grown by the sort of enemy civilization in the story, which uh, I guess I don't want to go too much into for spoilers. If, if you haven't read it to our, you, our listener, this is a fascinating thing. And it's kind of like you said, they're the, the they're the disposable beings that are used by the uh, by this other civilization. And so that's that's what this always ends up as, is that you you create these uh, creatures that are less than human and then you use them i mean it's just a new form of slavery i i don't see why this doesn't occur to people right away when uh, when they're you know just drawing up the idea or writing it out it's like really you had to go all the way to creating this uh subhuman creature before you thought about the ethical problem so our next kind of example of this is we won't go into this whole lot but there's been a lot of talk of this technology called CRISPR. Uh, I, I have discussions about CRISPR with a few other people all the time. And CRISPR is this uh, very precise gene editing technique. Now, there, there again, there are some interesting ways to use this to get rid of certain genetic diseases that have no cure otherwise. But then the far end concern about this is that uh, people would edit the embryos of their unborn or preborn children or even basically not even have children the natural way, but just have children through a lab and then select the most healthy ones or just eradicate all possibility of disease or anything and then choose the the embryo with the least amount of flaws. And so where we're going with this is the movie Gattaca, where everyone is genetically engineered before they're born and is that uh, Ethan Hawke is the, is the character that's kind of born the old-fashioned way. And he has a real struggle in the society of like superhumans, essentially. So there again, we, we've got we've got this warning going back to uh, I think that came out in the early two thousands or late nineteen nineties. Jude Law is in it. Again, really fascinating movie about kind of the societal fallout of meddling too much with our genetic code. Well, that also reminds me again, going back to uh, Star Trek. There is a rather significant uh, element of the lore. Uh, going back to the original series, that the Federation and other you know, cooperating civilizations of the future have outlawed this kind of gene editing or gene tampering. Presumably, you could do some, but in order to make someone superhuman, you'd have to do something that was against Federation law. And in the Star Trek timeline, the reason why this is against Federation law is because you had the eugenics wars in the late 20th century, according to at least the original version of the timeline. I don't know if there have been any changes since then, but the famous villain Khan, oh, yeah. who, was, uh, who was awakened in his ship in the, the famous 60s episode Space Seed, and then famously returned for the second film, The Wrath of Khan, he is a superhuman. He is the leader of a group of people who have been gene-edited, gene-spliced, uh, in order to improve their characteristics. They have increased intelligence, stamina, you know, of some measure of super strength, and they're basically sociopaths. And that is why Khan to this day is a very famous villain, you know, not just because, you know, he has this, uh, you know, he's a super bulky guy, but because he is, uh, at least by the time of the film, this vengeance driven person. So, of course, this superhuman, you know, has regressed into such a, a primal, immoral impulse. He will do anything to get his revenge on Captain Kirk and the crew of the Enterprise uh, for being marooned on the planet. And that is Star Trek's warning, you know, however humanistic, against eugenics. I mean, literally, you have this practice of good genes, is what the term eugenics means, condemned by an atheistic science fiction franchise. It is a bridge too far, mm. even for these folks. And that's, as far right. as I know, that's been baked in to the Star Trek uh, recipe for quite some time. And I think rightfully so. Nowadays, I would wonder if maybe some you know, modern writers for Star Trek you know, might understand, well, this is part of the lore and we can't cross it. But deep down, if they thought about it, they might wonder, well, why is this such a hard and fast rule? Wouldn't it be better 
to have people who were not born with, you know, genetic uh, deformities or differences. You know, wouldn't it be better if everybody was at least baseline human perfect? And then from there, of course, it's just a hop, skip and a jump over to, well, why not boost some other characteristics, make you a little smarter, make you a little stronger, you know, make you be able to live a little bit longer. Uh, and they explored this again in the Deep Space Nine series when, spoiler alert, it turned out that Dr. Julian Bashir uh, was such a smart doctor because he had been illegally experimented on. And this was a terrific scandal uh, for a subplot of that series. And it turns out, you know, it wasn't his fault. So it caused some other ethical issues. But if I remember correctly, that storyline, they still preserved that rule in Star Trek canon. Thou mm. shalt not experiment with gene editing lest you get another con and another one of those scenarios that led to uh, the eugenics war. Yeah, it seems like what they always ignore is the sinfulness of man, like man's fallen nature. And, you know, you can't just sweep that aside with perfect DNA or per perfect health or whatever. We, we are not just physical creatures. We, we are physical and spiritual together, and the spiritual aspect or, or a part of us is, is corrupted. Perfecting the physical does not perfect the spiritual. We don't work like that. And so it is very interesting to see a atheist film or at least a secular, you know, these secular movies understand that implicitly, even if they wouldn't think of it the same way, that, that there is still something about human nature that, that can't be fixed through science. Yeah, and notice something common here. Uh, there may be some Christian-made works of science fiction that address themes like this. I've seen a few, I think, uh, run across the transom at the Lorehaven Library, uh, the resource where we try to round up all of the Christian-made fantasy, science fiction, and beyond novels and list them all in one place. We don't always read them or uh, review them, but at least they're there for anyone trying to find that kind of story. So I've seen some of those, but they're not very common. And even those that are very common uh, seem to be more obscure. Like Zach, you mentioned the Lamb Among the Stars. I mean, it was a it was a it was a good book. I got a great uh, presentation there, uh, but I don't think a lot of people are familiar with that story. Uh, there may be some other ones that just they're not among the uh, the top works of fantasy that will appeal to Christian readers, and so they do tend to be a little bit more obscure. I wish we had more of those kinds of stories, uh, and we if so, we would list them here. If you can think of any, do let us know by reaching out to. The Fantastical Truth podcast will list the contact info at the end of this episode. Uh, but as it is, just don't think there's a lot of reader demand for that type of story. Uh, we will readdress this topic where more Christian readers who like fantasy tend to like fantasy, you know, more traditional uh, or more of the cozier side of science fiction. But there is a necessary component of much science fiction to explore those kinds of edgier themes and those warnings against mad science. Yeah, this is definitely an area where Christians should be at the, at the front of the row and, and, and speaking into this in a, in a gracious way, but in a clear way. Right. But these, but these are secular stories that are warning against it. You know, it's not like some crazy Christian out there is writing a book and a warning against splicing together human and uh, monkey DNA. Uh, there are many secular and humanist sci-fi tales warning about this. So how much more absurd is it to, for our real life scientists to ignore these warnings? Well, the last uh, headline to round out this topic was uh, we're going to go from designer babies to designer dinosaurs. So this is an article from Big Think. Uh, the headline is Elon Musk partner says he could build the real Jurassic Park uh, with, with, with no problem. And it's, it says the co-founder of Elon Musk's company Neuralink tweeted on Saturday that the startup has the technological advances and savvy to create its own Jurassic Park, end quote. So my only comment here is, hey, at least they are aware that they have become the meme. <laughs> like, they're not totally ignoring the story about how this, you know, played out in the uh, fictional Jurassic Park. They, at least they're referencing it so they're somewhat self-aware, but I'm like, oh, maybe we should just, should just stop right there. <laughs> I agree. That would probably be a good idea, but I don't think Elon Musk is going to stop. He's going to never <laughs> stop, never stopping. Can't stop, won't stop. Right, right. Well, our second category is about sentient robots, artificial intelligence. So this is sort of the successor to the industrial revolution. Uh, we are in the midst of the machine intelligence revolution. Now, there are some fun examples of this. So there's AlphaGo, which is a, uh, a neural network that uh, defeated the top go player in the entire world and now it it has defeated itself and sort of the next iteration and so basically if you play the game go 
against this bot. There's no way you'll ever win. And and this is a really amazing thing, Stephen. So that this uh, was the first kind of story I started following back when I was in college about machine intelligence, because I, I learned how to play Go from my roommate John, and he explained to me that there uh, he's with, with chess. There are a discrete number of outcomes to the game of chess because you know you've got a certain number of pieces. The board is what eight by eight, and the, the pieces can only do certain things. And so there is a limited number of possible games that can happen. So, you know, you could build a computer big enough to memorize every iteration of a game. But with Go, the board is 19 by 19, and any piece can go pretty much anywhere on the board unless it's in a captured space. The, the quip is that there are more possible outcomes of the game of Go than there are atoms in the universe. So in other words, there's no possible way to build a computer powerful enough to memorize every possible outcome of Go. You wouldn't have enough electrons in the whole universe to store that. And so this sort of computer works entirely differently than what we think of with a computer. It is more of a heuristic learning or it, it's a self-teaching computer in, in a sense. So it's kind of fun when it comes to a game. But of course, we we have a 1980s movie that warned us what would happen, which is War Games with uh, Matthew Broderick. You know, the the famous, would you like to play a game? And then the computer sort of being put in charge of the America's nuclear arsenal and simulating a, a mass nuclear attack against the Soviet Union and then coming to the conclusion that the only way to win the game is not to play. So, hey, this warning has been with us now for about 40 years that maybe we shouldn't turn over military weapons to computers. And it seemed like we were there, but what do you know? The headline from Forbes is U.S. Army's new drone swarm may be a weapon of mass destruction. So This article talks about how, you know, typically with drones, they are controlled remotely. Uh, there's lawyers involved. There's a ton of people involved to, to make sure that you know, the drone kills the bad guy and no one else, basically. But now there are these fully autonomous drone swarms that can locate, identify, and attack targets without human intervention. And so the warning flag on this is that, hey, these can actually become weapons of mass destruction because it can't distinguish from civilian and military targets. And uh, it says in the article that there's even, a, you know, there's a recent viral video called Slaughterbots that was <laughs> shown as like a warning to what could happen if flying missile drones can just decide on their own who to kill. That's just a little terrifying. I mean, sure, <laughs> if you're in the country that's developing this thing, comforting, I suppose, but not if you're in a country that hasn't developed this thing. And of course, I could launch us off on a huge rabbit tail right, uh, trail right now by talking about those UFOs that could actually be you know, Iranian drones, and they were looking right. at the uh, the U.S. battleship, you know, from a drone just a few years ago. Uh, by the way, Zach, real quick, say nuclear for me. Uh, nuclear. Nah, 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 that's a George W. Bush. <laughs> Isn't it charming, folks? I've just I, been wanting to comment Texan. on that for a while. Yeah, just a bit. Nu <laughs> nuclear warfare, nuclear, n n nuclear terrorism. Oh, yeah, I own it. <laughs> Go for it. Keep it up. I'll say it correctly. Yeah. You know, I'll say other words incorrectly. Well, and, uh, you know, if you follow the news with this stuff, there are the um, uh, DARPA is working on these uh, these intelligent drones. Boston Dynamics has the uh, the gymnast drone that can do backflips. There's, of course, the seedier side of this, which I'll just call the uh, prostitute androids. And again, we've seen stories about this uh, artificial intelligence, again, with uh, Jude Law, uh, the British TV show Humans, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy 2 even had a a prostitute android in it and yet they are th this is uh really taking off and in some sectors so yeah i don't like where this is going i think a lot of people don't like where this is going the city of houston actually tried to pass a law uh forbidding ro robotic sex workers uh brothels basically i don't know where this is going we seem to have enough stories to tell us this is a bad idea but i want to end on a positive note here because we, we really could talk about artificial intelligence all day but there's a really, Stephen, there's a really funny Facebook page I've come across now, and it's, it's called uh, Bots of New York. It's a parody of Humans of New York, which are these like mini documentaries. And it uses a, uh, I forget exactly what kind of neural net, but it, but it uses artificial intelligence to create an image and a story. 
And sometimes they almost work. And it's sort of like that, you know, uncanny valley of like, it's like almost human enough that you, it all, it's almost more disturbing that it's like so close, but so off. And so I, I could read through these all day, but the one I want to read is actually pretty appropriate for this podcast. The, uh, the quote was truth is stranger than fiction, but fiction is stranger than nonfiction. Fan fiction is stranger than the truth, but the truth about fan fiction is the strangest of all. Stop me if you're dying. What I'm trying to say is that in reality, the truth is out there. <laughs> so this was made by a bot. Like it almost works, right? Like it, it almost makes sense. It almost sounds kind of like mystical or something, but you know, th- this is how I think the actual robo apocalypse is going to happen is that <laughs> they're just going to take over all the communication and, and we think we're talking to humans, uh, but we're, we're just talking to these bots, I guess. I think the actual robo apocalypse is probably upon us in the form of these romance companions. And as you mentioned, the uh, seedier yep. side, uh, that part terrifies me more, not because I think that these things are going to come to life and then go around pillaging or taking over our computers and such like those images are gaudy and over the top, uh, which I think actually reflect the worst threat. The true infection from that kind of a thing is going to be in the human heart. Uh, you are literally cauterizing yourself away from any meaningful human relationships. And now, I mean, it, it, it's, it's a fake of a fake of a fake, you know, the, the right. fake relationship is the kind, which is, you know, sex without consequences, you know, multiple partners, no meaningful commitment, you know, and far distant from the, uh, the Christian or Judeo Christian idea of covenant marriage, which has been with the human race in various forms ever since God's creation. But now you've got, you know, there's no longer even any human component. It is one person and then basically a, 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 a big doll, uh, a big doll that's made in some idealized, you know, gross human image. And I'm just going to stop it there. That part there is terrifying uh, and could lead itself in several different, you know, low key dystopian sci fi scenarios. Uh, I've got one of those as, as part of my own uh, science fiction universe. I haven't gone there to explore this area yet. But it's it's coming up, you know, the, the, the problem is, if you project this forward, uh, if you, you realize that once you take the limits off of human sexual and relational restraint in this way and then blend in technology even worse uh, than the widespread availability of pornography, that element would take over any rational science fiction future of the human race. And so you've got to come up with some kind of uh, post dystopian or you know, some kind of limit on that thing. You know, similarly, a Star Trek came up with, well, you're not allowed to do genetic tampering because I think even back then in the 60s, they knew that if this phenomenon ran amok, you wouldn't have a science fiction future. It would destroy the human race. They had to have this idea of, of a eugenics war. And then after that, OK, well, we ban all of that you know, because otherwise the entire story is just going to be about that uh, when we want to make it about discovery and human flourishing in space in this uh, godless uh, federation. Similarly, I think you've got to come up with some kind of a science fiction limit on humans and the sex bots or else the whole story, the entire human future will just be about trying to deal with these things and trying to resist the plague of humans obsessed with their fake romantic companions. I'm reminded just a little bit of the, uh, the famous uh, revelation passage, which uh, some Christians take to refer to some kind of a, you know, android possessed by a demon or something. And, an, and, and, and an image was made of the beast and uh, it was given the power of speech you know, and so that all the world marveled and followed after the beast saying, who's like the beast and who is able to wage war against him? It's a heavy paraphrase there from Revelation 13. But I think that there is that whatever your view on prophecy or the beast or whatever his image is, I think there's a rightful suspicion against that kind of human-like device that can talk. Uh, that represents some kind of an ideal. Uh, it goes right back to the very basic Christian revulsion against idolatry. Images made in the form of man and birds and animals and reptiles, as the Apostle Paul describes them in Romans 1. Yeah, everyone should read Romans 1. It would, it would make a lot of this a lot simpler. Well, let's look at our last category of transhumanism, and we'll go through this kind of quickly. You know, th- this is basically the way that researchers are trying to improve the human condition by sort of taking all of this knowledge, all of this technology and turning us into something beyond the biological. And so, uh, we're going to look at real quick, uh, neural link, 
uh, the gateway process and this uh, sort of uploading technology they're looking into. So Elon Musk, once again, here in the story is his brain chip startup Neuralink. They, they put this chip into a, a monkey and the monkey was able to play a video game with his mind. So not even using the joystick, but wirelessly controlling this video game. So again, there's a, there's a good idea behind this, which is allowing someone with paralysis to move around to, you know, to have some control over their environment, over their body, I guess, bring back functionality to their body. Again, you, you can see the good idea behind this, or at least the good intention behind it. Um, of course, Planet of the Apes comes to mind right away. Uh, a John Scalzi book called Lock In comes to mind where um, it's sort of different where uh, people that are locked into their own bodies through this uh, disease in this book are living out their lives in a like a virtual reality existence. So they don't really live uh, physically or they, they walk around through these like uh, androids uh, that they control with their minds. And so, yeah, it, it's sort of taking us beyond what a human is or what a particular human is capable of and taking you somewhere humans haven't gone before. Uh, again, I think they should read these books and watch these movies. Or they could at least listen to the Adventures in Odyssey Novacom arc from the mid-2000s, uh, which uh, some some fans don't appreciate as much. And uh, in, in I think in fairness to their criticism, uh, they... they took a concept that was basically this this corporation called Novacom, which was moving into the small town of Odyssey in this uh, Christian-made audio drama series. And then it turned out uh, they were cobbling together technology and doing a lot of sabotage and some illegal acts uh, to put together this technology that would do just this, uh, that would allow you to control the robotic arm with your mind. Uh, like a Dr. Octopus, actually, in the uh, mm. especially the adaptation in the Spider-Man yeah. PS4 game. Uh, and you know what happened there if you're familiar with uh, Doc Ock and his uh, uh, robotic arms. But in the Odyssey case, it was a promising medical development uh, that unfortunately ended up uh, uh, reversible. Uh, you could use the device then to control the human mind. And then you know, rather than taking in the transhumanistic direction, uh, they took it more in the direction of you know, evil corporation is going to use popular culture and uh, you know, converting uh, radio waves to thought waves. Uh, from this box on your TV. And so it ended up being uh, kind of a more popular culture is going to control your mind, you know, message uh, may have lost the theme just a little bit by the end, but it's still a good or interesting concept uh, that lends itself to some very scary directions. Yeah. That, that was the Incredibles too. kind of touched on that with the, uh, uh, yes. the screen slaver hypnosis through your TV. Another underrated movie is surrogates with Bruce Willis that touched on this idea of People just staying at home on their virtual reality device, controlling a robotic cl or Android clone, or kind of a drone, basically, not interacting in person anymore. And it's like, well, you could you could see how the uh, an endless pandemic could bring us to that future where people just completely live online, but they're living through these like remote controlled bodies. That's another good warning for what could happen there. Um, the next thing I mentioned was the, the this weird thing called the gateway process. This is an article from Vice, which says, uh, quote, it provides a scientific framework for understanding and expanding human consciousness, out-of-body experiments, and other altered states of mind, end quote. So am I describing a cult here or a religion? No, this is actually research that the CIA did uh, the last few decades, and they've declassified all this uh, documentation now. All this kind of stuff about, you know, basically psychic, remote viewing, uh, astral projection, this kind of stuff. And they, they think they can cause this to happen through certain sound wave patterns and um, uh, meditation techniques. I, I, I don't really know, but th this is, you know, our own government was looking into this and basically figuring out how to use a scientific method to take humans to a spiritual plane of existence and, and become more than just you know, biological beings. Uh, so th this is, uh, this is very odd <laughs> that this is going on. And, and again, there are warnings about this from fiction, stranger things. The TV series is all about this, about uh, what, what could go wrong if, if you dabble in this and not again, not a Christian view, but basically this idea that you could go into the dark side, both just morally, but also 
you could find a real spiritual underworld that could invade this world through this stuff. I mean, this is exactly the kind of stuff that the Bible explicitly warns us about. Don't commune with the dead. Don't commune with spirits because you are, you are going to bring stuff into your life, into this world that you're going to wish you hadn't. Well, and the last example of this transhumanism trend is this plan that a, um, you know, some kind of billionaire, whoever has to upload his consciousness and everyone else's to a Dyson sphere. So this combines a lot of interesting sci-fi trends to, to create basically this hollow shell around the sun that'll power this ultra powerful computer virtual reality simulation. It'll sample your DNA. It'll take all your tweets and, and whatever emails and create a digital copy of you, then eventually create a physical copy of you. And then you'll live forever. And it's really interesting, Stephen, when I, I looked into this, it's this guy named Turchin or Turkin is the scientist or the whatever, the entrepreneur. And it says, uh, quote, he was inspired to investigate the afterlife after he experienced the tragic death of a fellow classmate at the age of 11 years old. Affected by that experience, the scientist stated, quote, I started to think in science fiction terms about what could be done. There it is. Quote. There it is. So he's getting nonfiction <laughs> headlines based on science fiction ideas. He's not built a Dyson sphere. He's not figured out how to transfer human consciousness into digital archives. He's done none of this stuff. He's just sitting there making things up. And then he's able to get somebody to put out a press release with a fancy letterhead in full color emailed over to just the right kind of journalist who needs a clickbaity sort of headline, and then off we go. This is the new science, falsely called, I would say. This is science fiction masquerading as science, and, and like that's fine. We like science fiction. Keep it science fiction. Stop pretending that it's real. Well, and just the headline was amazing. Scientists may have figured out how to raise the dead. Really? You know, like... That is so clickbait. Uh, I, oh, yeah. I cannot respect that. No, no, no <laughs> respect at all. Uh, I, I kind of respect it a little bit. At least it's well, like, you can it's like, at least the it's gumption <laughs> of it. Yes, it's, it's honestly desperately wanting your clicks because we are using science, a trademark, uh, in place of religion. And that's, that's where I go with, you know, the answer to our question about why aren't scientists or researchers heeding the warnings of science fiction. It's because they're not researching science in a lot of these areas. This is not legitimate scientific research in a lot of ways. This is practice of religion. And if right. you, you know, there's a particular type of religious mode that people get into where they're not actually listening to science or science fiction. Their heads are full of these quasi-spiritual concepts like transferring consciousness or living forever uh, or behaving in inhuman ways with inhuman objects and calling this some kind of legitimate uh, self-interested pursuit. None of this is actual science. It is, uh, it is religion. And so why would you listen then to another religion, a competing religion, warning you through science fiction, you know, a, a moral basis in a lot of the science fiction that we've talked about that is warning you, don't meddle with nature. You know, man was not meant to play God. Uh, you're not supposed to splice together this DNA. You know, you're supposed to have relationships with human beings instead of robots. All of those just seem to be uh, ancient warnings. You know, the the foolish villagers who are outside of the mad scientist laboratory carrying the pitchforks, you know, demanding to put an end to whatever unholy experiments are going on inside the lab as soon as the lightning strikes. I think that's what some of these scientists are thinking. Like, they don't see themselves as the villains. If they know about these stories at all, those were the scientists from the olden times when people, those were the idiots. Yeah. Those yeah. were the bad, mad scientists. They were, they, <laughs> they were foolish. They weren't as smart as we are now. They're not as specialized as we are now. They were doing all these crude experiments. They may not have known about germs. Uh, they didn't know about sociology and, you know, all of the, you know, the high and lonely destiny to which uh, great men or women of history have been called. And it's, it's just another form of arrogance. It's just another form of idolatry. And in the face of idolatry, the warnings of scripture are not going to get through, but then not even the echoing warnings that sound a bit like a prophetic warning of doom from science fiction aren't going to get through. You can write off that meme of Dr. Ian Malcolm from Jurassic Park as just a movie. It would be perfectly okay for me to extract the DNA from mosquitoes fossilized in amber and bring the terrible lizards back to life. It's perfectly fine. And then, of course, as Jurassic Park very wisely and probably ahead of its time points out, at least the movie version, 
as soon as they got this scientific breakthrough, all of a sudden they were monetizing it. They were putting stickers on lunchboxes. They had their little video presentation and their theme park ride and everything just became completely commercialized. It's never all about just scientific research or helping humanity or even limited to an individual scientist's arrogance. Uh, it's also about the profit motive. It's about business interests and you know the love of money and all that stuff coming along and uh, also driving what is falsely called pure science. Well, and Ian Malcolm in Jurassic Park rightly calls out how they are playing God. And that got me thinking this week that, you know, the very first sort of promise or, or really a lie, but it's, it's like a twisted promise was from Satan, where in Genesis 3, 5, he said, when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Well, there it and is. That, and that's what, that's the foundation of everything. But here's the, the twist sort of, First John 3, 2 it says, when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And that's the promise for believers, that when Christ appears, when he returns, we will be changed in, in the twinkling of an eye and we'll, we'll be like him. We'll have resurrected bodies. We, we won't need a digital uploaded copy to a Dyson sphere. We're going to have a new body that, that's going to last forever and through faith in Christ. And that's the difference. Are you going to be like God on your own or are you going to let God change you into have a Christ-like body. Yeah, you, you won't need any kind of false promise from transhumanism to upload your consciousness or adapt in some way to, you know, to technology by becoming technology. You won't need a relationship with, with a robot you know, at some kind of fake romantic level. And you certainly won't need to change your own fundamental nature or the nature of the human race's descendants through gene editing. All of that is the false way of trying to be like God. It's a complete skewing of the promise that God has created us in his image. And people, I think, especially if they get overeducated or over-specialized and uh, completely ignore uh, the basis of science in philosophy, uh, philosophy which includes morality and ethics and all that stuff that Neil deGrasse Tyson doesn't seem to care about, but a Twitter account for a steak product does. <laughs> that was amazing. <laughs> we definitely need to link to that in the show notes, please. Again, it's a Twitter reference. So uh, for more info, just see the, uh, the, the ever elusive show notes. But yes, actual science needs to be supported by philosophy and ethics and all of those things. And if you pretend that that's just for other people to handle while I'm going off over here and doing my science, you're going to be blind to your own failings. You're going to be blind to the foundation of your own discipline. I think I mean, if you even read about the fairly recent history of the scientific method and all of that, it was all developed by people who had some kind of Judeo-Christian background. Doesn't mean they were all Christians, doesn't mean they were all uh, you know, Bible believers, but they did come from a society that assumed certain ideas about the order of the universe and natural laws and the idea that humans are meant to understand and discover and explore and perform repeatable experiments to observe the conditions of the present. And what happens if you mix these two things together? And all of that is legitimate science, but it's based on a biblical worldview. Depart from the biblical worldview and your science is going to depart from what should be called science. Well, that was a good discussion today, Stephen. And now let's open up the mailbag and hear from the fantastic fans. We got a note from Jason V, who wrote to us after episode 50, Do Christians Really Need Fiction? And Jason writes, quote, great episode, guys. I'm catching up. Looking forward to parts two and three of the series. Excellent points about fiction within the context of community, especially the church. Book clubs can be tough to pitch and maintain, especially if people can't keep up the reading pace. An alternative to a traditional book club was described in a recent Mere Orthodoxy article, where enthusiasts of an author or book gather to read aloud together. Another very different means of exploring fiction together in a small group is in the context of a tabletop role-playing game like Dungeons & Dragons, where the players take the roles of protagonists in a genre, setting, and adventure that develops through play in a kind of immersive, collaborative storytelling process. End quote. Uh, thanks so much, Jason. I'll, I will definitely check out that article from your orthodoxy. That's a really neat way to do a book club. Yeah, and, and I, I appreciate the the suggestion for a, a different idea. Like that was, uh, you know, something we solicited your feedback uh, earlier, listeners, for how do you do a book club and what what's worked, what hasn't worked. But that is an interesting way. I I, I haven't gotten role playing games recently, but I have so many friends that are. 
And I see what you're saying that it's like you're stepping into the story and you're sort of taking on the role of the characters. Yeah, I foresee if a future Fantastical Truth episode about uh, tabletop gaming, not just Dungeons and Dragons and uh, some of the you know mixed legacy of evangelicals' response to that, you know, but games like uh, Pathfinder or even some Christian-made tabletop uh, games that uh, have a lot of great opportunities for collaborative creativity and uh, shared interests among Christians who are fans. So that's one future episode we have coming up, uh, possibly in the fall. I think I know who just might be speaking about that on the podcast but in our next episode on fantastical truth uh, while uh, putting together some of the ideas for this episode we began to notice you know there's not a lot of popular christian made fiction that's exploring deeper themes like the dangers of transhumanism or what happens if you do gene editing like there are books that exist that cover these i'm not going to go off and do the whole why doesn't anyone write about this uh thing but they're not as well known And what I've noticed just informally is that most Christian-made stories about this uh, tend to immediately take things in a very spiritual direction. Uh, The mad science is actually tapping into the demonic dimension, and the real threat is not so much a guy in a lab coat, but a creature from beyond the veil. At least that's the impression I get. So what we're going to do is we're actually going to ask the question, why don't we have more edgier Christian-made science fiction? And What would it take to raise reader demand for that? We're going to have a special guest to explore that. And he himself knows a little bit about science fiction that goes places. A lot of other uh, Christian-made fantastical stories uh, simply don't go. We like those stories, but I personally would like to see more of these kinds of stories as well, if there can be reader demand for them. Meanwhile, even if our researcher neighbors are not heeding the warnings of secular-made science fiction against playing God or meddling with nature or any of those idolatrous impulses and are turning themselves into mad scientists, let's avoid madness ourselves. Let's base our enjoyment of science in the rationality and Godward direction of the scripture and ourselves heed the warnings of science fiction, whether by Christian creators or anyone else, as we continue to seek and find fantastical truth.